Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. If you think you know Christopher Wren, born in 1632 and remembered as the most English of all England's architects, today I ask you to think again. Varenne was far more than an architect. He was an anatomist, a mathematician, a navigator and astronomer. He was a founding member of the Royal Society, he held a chair at Gresham College and was a member of Parliament. He was a husband, a father and a widower, twice over. He was a courtier and a man who, in his 90-year-long life, experienced struggles and tragedy. To some, he was almost a deity. To all, he was certainly a virtuoso. With so many facets to his life and character, it's not likely that we will ever truly know Wren. But we can appreciate him as a person whose life was as complex as the beautiful bricks, stone and mortar he left behind. Professor Adrian Tinniswood, OBE and Fellow of the Society of Antiquaries, is my guest today. Author of no fewer than 18 books on social and architectural history, Adrian has also worked with several heritage organisations, including the National Trust. He's currently Professorial Research Fellow at the Humanities Research Institute, the University of Buckingham, and Adjunct Professor of History at the University of Maynooth Island. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Tinniswood to talk about his wonderful book, His Invention So Fertile, A Life of Christopher Wren. Professor Tinniswood, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you, it's great to be with you. It's really wonderful to have a chance to talk with you, and what a wonderful subject. We have got most intensely interesting, incredibly talented person that we're going to be thinking about together. Basically, he is the man. There's no one quite like him. So, I can't wait to get started. Let's start at the beginning, because most people will think of Wren as an architect, but he didn't become an architect as such until he was in his 30s. So I would like us to rewind and to consider what he'd been doing before this time. I know that he grew up in the period prior to and during the Civil War. So can you give us a sense of Wren and his family during these turbulent years? He's born on 20th of October 1632 in East Noyle, where his father is rector. He's not born in the rectory because there's just been a fire there. So the family moved out to a cottage in the village. But his father is a clergyman. His uncle is a Lordian clergyman. They've both been quite close to Lancelot Andrews, who's part of Archbishop Lord's circle. They're high church, both of them. And they're both quite important. His father becomes Dean of Windsor. His uncle Matthew becomes Bishop of Ely. They're in the forefront of that beauty of holiness, if you like. And there's no doubt that Wren should and would have gone into the church in a world that wasn't turned upside down. But when the Civil War breaks out, his father's ejected from East Noyle and also from Windsor. His uncle Matthew gets thrown in the tower where he stays for 18 years. And the church doesn't seem that good an option for a young man in the 1640s. He's very bright. He's very delicate. He's basically a mathematician. This is what he does. 
Mathematicians weren't invented in the 1640s, but if they were, that's what he would have been. He dabbles with making things like sundials, mechanical problems and mathematical problems. He's interested in the stars. He's interested in how things work. And it's from there he starts to move in with a circle of experimental philosophers, people who are influenced by Bacon's Solomon's House, by the New Atlantis, by the whole idea of checking out the world rather than accepting ancient authorities. Look for yourself, see what the world does and experiment, have a hypothesis, test it and then thesis. Wren's part of that and it seems like it's ordinary for us today. It was revolutionary in the 1640s. People didn't do that. They accepted that there were centaurs, there were unicorns. They're still struggling to work out if the earth actually moves around the sun or not. And a lot of people in Wren's childhood don't believe it does. So he's right at the forefront of a scientific revolution and he's in his teenage years. I suppose that gives us a sense of changing attitudes to knowledge and learning in his youth, because that sense of experimentation as a method of proceeding, the Baconian method, perhaps underpins how he becomes someone who studies such a vast array of subjects. Do you think that's the heart of it? Because he really becomes a real virtuoso in a way that is almost unimaginable today. Yeah. Wren knows everything in a world where it is possible to know everything. And then he finds out more. He's remarkably bright as a teenager. But the group he's moving with, people like William Harvey, who's just posited the idea of the circulation of the blood, Charles Scarborough, who becomes the king's physician, who he lodges with in London, who introduces him to a circle including, eventually, John Wilkins, the warden of Wadham, Seth Ward, professor of astronomy, Robert Boyle, the weird, neurasthenic, brilliant young man who settled in Oxford. He moves with this group, and their idea is that the world is a problem to solve. It's a question to be answered. And those people that he's mixing with, when most of them are actually a generation older than him, but it's a mark of how bright he was, I think, that he's accepted that miracle of a youth, I think John Evelyn calls him, the extraordinary genius. Everybody thinks that this kid is not only their equal, he's better than them at what they do, which is quite remarkable, I think. And to give some sense of how this is being recognised, he's graduated from Warden College, Oxford. He's been made a Fellow of All Souls. And in his 20s, he makes his first career move outside of Oxford to become a Professor of Astronomy at Gresham College in London. Gresham College still exists, of course, to this day. This seems rather unusual to become a professor in one's 20s. But what did the role involve? And do you think that that shows Wren starting to reach an audience that is different from his fellow academics at Oxford? He's been engaged at Oxford in all kinds of things. He's been engaged in astronomy. His interest in astronomy is primarily mathematical, I think. He makes telescopes. He makes a brass model of Saturn showing Saturn's rings. He doesn't quite get it right. He thinks the rings touch the planet at two points. But nevertheless, it's the first time anyone has suggested that Saturn has rings. He's the first person in the world to perform a canine splenectomy. Dogs didn't do too well in the 1650s in Oxford, but he injects an opiate into the back leg of a spaniel 
and the dog gets stoned. Therefore, the poison, if you like, the drug circulates around the body. But he has a reason for doing it. He's the first person, as far as we know, to perform a canine splenectomy. I really mean that dogs did not do well in 1650s Oxford. A canine splenectomy without benefit of anaesthetic is a little bit ooky. But he doesn't do that for fun. He does that because no one is quite sure what the spleen is doing in the system. And he suggests that if an animal can do without it, then it's not doing all that much. The dog survives. He performs this me on Robert Boyle's dog, who is promptly rechristened Spleen, which is a kind of unimaginative name. <laughs> so his interests are actually medical as much as anything. And it's interesting that, to skip ahead, right at the end of his long life, he said he wishes he hadn't wasted his time in rubbish, which was his term for architecture. He wishes he'd been a physician, then he would have really made some money. How interesting. I thought you were going to say he wished he'd been a physician because that would have done some good. But, no, um, not at all. <laughs> in the end, not having the cash matters. So whilst he's at Gresham, he's a founding member of the Royal Society. Yeah. Why was the society needed? It's founded in 1660. What could it do that Gresham could not? In a way, it's a kind of reconvening of a lot of the figures who were at Wadham and All Souls, who were the great experimental club that was in Oxford in the 1650s. And a lot of them were parliamentarians, which means they were rejected in 1660. So they started to drift into London. Wren has been made Professor of Astronomy at Gresham in 1657, where he's grappling mainly with the problem of longitude and how we measure longitude. John Wilkins, his old mentor at Wadham, is there. Seth Ward, the astronomer, is there. Robert Hooke makes an appearance slightly later on. But they're actually a group of men who share a common interest in the experimental philosophy, in seeing how things work. And you're quite right. It's after one of Wren's lectures in November of 1660 that they all pile into a colleague's room and say, let's have a club. And these 12 men, they found the Royal Society. So... Oxford, in other words, has become anti-experimental philosophy. It's become pro-religious authority, again, post the restoration of the Stuart monarchy. Indeed. And this is the alternative. These are the people who continue to be radical in their thinking. How did this change affect Wren besides the formation of the Royal Society? The 1660s for Wren, he's not quite sure where to go, I don't think. Because shortly after the Royal Society is founded, in 1661, in fact, he leaves Gresham, he goes back to Oxford, he becomes civilian professor of astronomy at Oxford, and he drifts back and forth between Oxford and London. And he turns up at some of the Royal Society meetings and doesn't turn up at others. He's always promising to do things and never doing them. Yes, he's interested in science, in the experimental science, and he remains for most of the 1660s. Astronomy is his primary interest, and it's certainly his day job. That's what he does. But two things, I think, in the early 1660s have got him thinking about architecture. One is poor old Uncle Matthew, the Bishop of Ely, who we left in the Tower of London for 18 years. He finally gets out. And as a bit of a thank offering, he suggests he would like to build a chapel at Pembroke College, Cambridge. And for reasons that are still unclear, he asks his nephew to give it a shot. He asks Wren if he will design it, which Wren does a competent job, a nice kind of faintly classical auditory box. It's a good piece of work. The other thing that draws Wren into architecture as a primary interest is Gilbert Sheldon, who was Wren's old warden at All Souls, and who becomes in fairly swift succession Bishop of London, then Archbishop of Canterbury. But Sheldon offers to pay for a new theatre for graduation and other ceremonies in Oxford. 
And again, for reasons that we're still not absolutely clear about, Wren suggests that he'd like to have a go at doing it. It's not as bizarre as I make it sound, because the idea of a virtuoso in 17th century, you could do anything. You could dabble. Most of Wren's friends designed buildings. Not many of them were built, but it's just what you did. Wren, however, with Pembroke College and then with the Sheldonian, which is a remarkable piece of work. He's untrained, remember. He doesn't know anything about architecture. He doesn't know what makes buildings stand up. And he does this fantastic job on the Sheldonian. And those two things clearly move him towards architecture, but only very gently, not exclusively. He's still Professor of Astronomy. That's what he does still. It's just that he's starting to think about how to apply mathematical principles to buildings. Both these projects, however, came under attack, architecturally speaking. Why was this? Certainly, the Sheldonian was attacked, or at least it became a sort of a statement of religious authority as against the new science, which was questioning everything, was seen as questioning religious truths. And that made it dangerous. Robert Streeter's wonderful ceiling of the Sheldonian with basically religious authority casting out all these troublesome other authorities. It becomes a conflict. Wren is never actually that radical. Politically, he's not radical at all. His background is royalist, solid royalist. His career will be with the Church of England and with the Crown, with the state. He's a state architect. He's never disruptive. He's never radical in that political or ideological sense at all. He's solid right the way through. He's a consummate politician. This man will become, in 1669, he will become Surveyor General of the King's Works, the most important architectural job in the country. Just think, he gets that job and he keeps it in Charles II's reign, James II's reign, William and Mary, William, Queen Anne. He loses it with George I. That's Kissinger still being Secretary of State through six different administrations. He's got to have been very good at schmoozing. I think. Yes. And actually, I did want to ask you about his character because we've talked about his 20s. We're in his 30s now in the 1660s. But one thing I learned from your book was that in his 20s, Wren actually found it quite difficult to follow through with work and didn't really care that much about his reputation. And I wondered whether his character could be called challenging at times. Yeah, he's always starting things and leaving them, moving on to something else. He has an idea, he suggests it, he won't publish. A lot of the time it's left to Hook, who's one of his closest with the Micrographia, for example. The impetus for the Micrographia comes from Wren. Hook's just writing it up, which is very unfair to Robert Hook because he does a lot more than that. He's following. <laughs> Hook's the completer finisher, whereas uh, Wren is the kind of plant, you know, he's the person who comes up with the ideas. Exactly that. And if you look at the early proceedings of the Royal Society, Wren is always promising to bring in a model. He makes a model of the moon, which he gives to Charles II, which is in Charles II's private closet at Whitehall. He promises to make another one for the Royal Society, and he doesn't. <laughs> And they keep asking him, and he goes, yeah, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. Next meeting, I'll bring one in. And he just can't be bothered because he's moved on to the next thing, whatever that next thing is. That next thing, certainly, and the pivotal moment in Wren's career is that point in the early hours of the 2nd of September, 1666, when a baker in Pudding Lane forgets to put his oven out. That's the moment. I've got a very dear friend who's convinced it was Wren that threw the fireball into Farinder's bakery. <laughs> 
because if it weren't for that, would we be here talking about Christopher Wren now? Maybe as a scientist, when he's 30-odd, he hasn't finished a single building, but he's an international authority on astronomy. But without the fire, I don't know, do you think? On American History Hit, we ride the wild Oregon Trail, delve deep beneath Central Park, and fight the forgotten war of 1812. Join me, Don Wildman, and my expert guests as we uncover the stories that have shaped America in all its endless complexity. We'll follow John Wilkes Booth as he shoots President Lincoln and goes on the run. And we'll walk under the stars with Harriet Tubman as she finds her way to freedom. Follow America's story from the first Native people to footprints on the moon. On American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, with new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So, of course, we're talking about St. Paul's Cathedral. Everyone has probably joined the dots. This is, in many ways, his magnum opus. And the context is this sense that after the fire ravaged the medieval building and, of course, much of the city, architects were invited to submit designs. And one thing I didn't really know, actually, was quite the extent to which the process was so difficult to survey the charred remains, to remove the debris, to approve designs, to source materials, to secure funding. So it took decades for the new cathedral to be built. Can you give some examples of these battles along the way and how Wren is coming out on top, really? He gets St Paul's, I think, partly if not mainly because Sheldon is involved and Dean Sancroft is an acquaintance, at least, of Wren. He gets it through the church all the time. The Church of England is a friend to Wren. 
But to start with, the building, which was in a bad state, let's not forget that one week before the fire of London, Wren is on a commission to repair Old St Paul's with Roger Pratt, who is much better qualified as an architect than Wren. And Wren, at that meeting of the commission, Wren says, let's do a dome. No one's done a dome. Let's do a dome on Old St Paul's. And Roger Pratt says, don't be stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. And they have a fight in the middle of the nave, in the cathedral. And Dean Sancroft has to pull them apart and give them a glass of wine and tell them to calm down. They'll do a proper survey. And then a week later, it burns down. Except it doesn't completely burn down. So for at least a year, the idea is to repair St Paul's. And Wren actually comes up with an idea to patch it up, his first design. The building is unsafe and people are killed, in fact, up with falling rubble. And it becomes quickly apparent that they need something new. But you're right, to actually get agreement, there are four, five, maybe even six designs that Wren comes up with for St Paul's. His best is the great model, which you can still see in St Paul's today, which is a huge dome basilica. And it would have been fantastic. Wren has it completed. He has the model designed, built, so everyone can see what it's going to be like. And then the dean and chapter say, actually, we're not so sure. You think it's a bit late for them to be saying that, but it's dawned on them two things. One is that a great white dome basilica is too Catholic for England. The other thing is that most of them will be dead, the dean and chapter, before St Paul's is able to come into use, because the whole building needs to be domed. It needs to be finished before it can be used. Whereas a conventional cruciform cathedral, you can start at the chancel, the choir, and work backwards and use that east end while you're working backwards. Wren wept. He's not an emotional man. He's not an easy man at all. He's a very reserved person, but that's one very rare occasion where he breaks down and weeps. He begs Charles II to get involved. And Charles II doesn't want to know about that kind of thing. So Wren goes away and he gives the dean and chapter exactly what they want, a kind of Jonesian, of course, the west end of St. Paul's, Bainigo Jones. He gives them a kind of a Jonesian replica with a melon dome on top with a kind of pagoda thing on it's as breathtaking in its ugliness as the great model was beautiful and the dean and chapter say yeah that's it that's exactly what we want <laughs> you've nailed it and then famously it's the warrant design it goes to charles ii who signs it off signs off the warrant but says that any change is ornamental rather than fundamental that he wishes to make he can make so, in fact, he designs a completely different cathedral. People used to say he did this without the dean and chapter noticing. How is that possible? In any case, any committee any of us have ever sat on, the idea of the chair not wanting to know what's going on with the building work over a 30-year period is ridiculous. So he must have bought them with him at some point. But you're right, even knocking it down, even demolishing the ruins. There's a famous story. He brought in a, an engineer from the Tower of London, because the crossing, they couldn't get it down, it's too solid. And the engineer puts a charge under one of the corners of the crossing, and it demolishes it. The story also is that when Rem was away, his clerk of works decided he'd have a go at what was left, and he didn't need any help from any military engineers, he'd put the charge in himself. And when a chunk of St Paul's flew through a wall a half a mile away, where two seamstresses were sitting... <laughs> This piece of rock whizzed between them. They were told they couldn't use any more explosive to demolish it. They had to do it with pickaxes and hammers. And you say it took a long time. It did, but just think, Wren is probably the first person in Britain to have built a cathedral and seen it through to the end. It took 35 years, but compared to Gloucester or Durham or any of the others, that's only half a lifetime. 
The Great Fire also ravaged over 80 churches, of course, in the city, leading to what you call the largest, most miraculous church-building project since the Middle Ages. Is it right to call them Wren's churches? Absolutely it is. But <laughs> I know where you're coming from here. There is a big but. Wren is the head of an administrative works. He designs some of the churches. He actually designs the high-status churches. He designs James Piccadilly. You know, he designs St Stephen Warbrook, which I know you're not supposed to have favourites, but that is the best church in the world. Others, Hook, all the various other builders on the commission, they're involved. But there's a wonderful drawing of the facade of St Edmund, King and Martyr in Lombard Street, Wren Church. That drawing is by Robert Hook. I know it's by Robert Hooke. I know Hooke's hand. And clearly Robert Hooke was doing the designing. In the pediment of that entrance facade, there's a little squiggle. And if you magnify the little squiggle, it's a CW for Christopher Wren. He's actually signing off the designs. And that's what he's doing. He's in charge of a massive building project. People argue about the number. There's actually something like 56 new churches. There were 109 in the city originally. Eight yard of them burn. Some of them, it's not worth putting back. Even in the 1660s and 70s, they don't have congregations. So congregations merge. But Wren is responsible for 56 of them. He probably individually designed a handful, 10 maybe. But still, without him, they wouldn't have been built. Right, so he's the one overseeing the whole project. The buck stops with him. He's Norman Foster. Norman Foster's not there at his drawing board doing every single detail. He's got a team. Now, as you said, although we would have perhaps thought the Wren was busy enough with the City of London... He also becomes Surveyor General for the King's Works and he's an MP for Devon as well. Was he the right man for these positions, do you think? History says he was, <laughs> but <laughs> with our insights, it's still not clear how he became Surveyor General of the Works. The Surveyor General was Sir John Denham, who was a great poet, but not an architect, not a builder at all. And who, in fact, went bonkers. And after he appeared in Charles II's bedchamber saying he was the Holy Spirit come to judge him, they thought he probably ought to take a holiday, which he did and promptly died. I mean, John Webb was all set to become Surveyor General. John Webb, Inigo Jones's nephew by marriage and assistant, was probably the best qualified modern architect. And Webb was convinced he was going to get the job. And somehow, Wren gets it. We don't know how. Presumably there was intervention for the church. There was his influential church contacts. He's on good terms with Charles II. The interesting thing is he becomes Surveyor General in 1669. He doesn't give up the day job. He has the most influential architectural job in Britain and he doesn't give up the job as Professor of Astronomy because he's not sure if he's going to like being Surveyor General. He does both. He just sort of accumulates positions and jobs, really. Yeah. He's head of the Commission for Rebuilding City Churches. He's the architect of St Paul's. He's a professor of astronomy, and now he's surveyor of the King's Works with responsibility for all the palaces. It's impossible. How can one bloke do that? He does, and he does it with ease. Let's think about some of Wren's secular architectural work. I mean, people will know the examples, the Royal Hospital, Chelsea, Whitehall, Kensington Palace, the Monument to the Great Fire, the South Front of Hampton Court. Were these projects as challenging as St Paul's? And do you get the impression that he enjoyed them, that he was proud of them? He was frustrated by all of them, I think. Whitehall, he wanted to pull down and rebuild. One thing, just let me throw in here, just to remind everyone, that although we think of Wren as the great exponent of English Baroque, he thought of himself as a classicist. He's rebuilding ancient Rome, and most of his designs he regarded as classical designs. 
So he wanted to build a classical White Palace of Whitehall. He wanted to knock down all those boring Tudor bits at Hampton Court and put a nice big new palace in, a shiny new palace. William and Mary, predominantly William, decided he hadn't got the cash and he was only allowed to do the Royal Apartments in the South Front. For which I, as a Tudor historian, am intensely grateful. That's why I said that. <laughs> I was being deliberately provocative. His masterpiece, in palace terms, would have been Winchester. In 1680, Charles II decides he wants to relocate out of London and to have a brand new palace in hunting country about a mile outside Winchester. He tells Wren to hurry up because he's not long for this world. And Wren does hurry. But in 1685, when the king has a stroke and dies, Winchester still isn't completed. James II is not so keen. And it's never finished. Whitehall doesn't work for him. Hampton Court doesn't work for him. Winchester doesn't work for him. I think he was frustrated all the way along the line with those royal buildings. So he's never been able to create the great vision. He's had it at St Paul's and now again and again... He's thwarted in the scale of his ambition, the scale of his vision, which other people just can't see or won't pay for. Yeah, I think that's a very fair way to look at it. He's strongest when he's up against it. That's one thing, I think, that he's strongest when he does have a problem, whether it's a structural problem or a political problem, when he's got a problem that he can solve or that he's invited to find a solution for. That's when he's at his best. One of the many problems at St Paul's is how to build a dome. People haven't done domes in England at that time. And the example that most people know about is that how to put a 300-ton cupola on top of the dome of St Paul's without it crushing it. He does a double or treble-skinned dome to support that cupola. He's not always right. There are a couple of moments that I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when Rem was working. One is with St Paul's almost finished and he's taken down into the crypt where the entire superstructure of the dome, which weighs as much as a fully laden Titanic, is resting on eight pillars. And he's taken down into the crypt by one of the building contractors and shown that those pillars are bursting. What do you do? <laughs> it's too late to rebuild it. What he does is wrap them in bands of iron and hope for the best. I'd love to have seen the look on his face though. The other moment I would love to have been there is towards the end of Wren's life, when he's walked away from St Paul's with it not quite finished. He falls out with the Dean and Chapter. He becomes a very crotchety old man. And the Dean and Chapter send a member of the St Paul's Commission round to Wren's house to discuss completing the railings on the roof. Trivial thing. The chap they send round is Isaac Newton. You've got Isaac Newton and Christopher Wren sitting across a table discussing the finishing St Paul's Cathedral. God, what a day that was. What an event. That is amazing. Amazing. Yes, just to be, as you say, a fly on the wall. It would be one of those moments that would remind us that history is not all progress. Yeah. And there have been a lot of brilliant people in the past. Can I ask you a bit about Wren's personal life and what we know of him? One thing we've said little about so far is Wren's religious beliefs. You talked about his family being high church and him being pro-monarch. Mm. Is it possible, do you think, to discern anything about his spirituality from his architecture or his other work? I see him as a very conventional Anglican. His religious beliefs aren't revolutionary, but they're part of who he is as they were for most people of his generation and his background. And his faith, I'm sure, was completely orthodox, completely conventional and total. I don't think he saw science and religion conflicting with each other at all. I think that's quite an important point because others were worried. He just didn't see it as an issue. 
It was another way of celebrating and understanding God. But you talk about his personal life, and that does get really difficult, I think. He's married twice, Faith Coghill and Jane Fitzwilliam. He's only married for, is it six years out of 93 years? He's not a sort of jolly family chap. He spends most of his leisure time in the coffee houses around the West End of London. That's where he socialises. That's where he does a lot of his work as well. He sees contractors in coffee houses. He does deals. He has progress reports. His private life and his professional life seem to me to be one. There's not a distinction between them in lots of ways. He does have children. He's devoted to his daughter, Jane, who dies quite young. He has a son, Christopher, who he wants to inherit from him. He tries to ensure that Christopher will become Surveyor General of the Works, which doesn't happen. Christopher's not got the temperament or the talent. He has another son, William. There's something wrong with William. We don't know what it is. There's a chance reference in a letter to him taking care of poor Billy to young Christopher Jr. People have suggested that he may have had a mental handicap. We don't know. We're just guessing. He lives a life of the mind. He's not a jolly chap by a long way. There's a remarkable bust by Edward Pierce, one of the contractors who worked on St Paul's, the bust of Christopher Wren in the Ashmolean. And it's the Christopher Wren that I think I know as far as I can know anyone. And he's got a slight smile on his lips and he's looking over your shoulder and you just get this sense that he can see farther than you can. He saw further. Was his unique skill as an architect and this vision of his appreciated in his lifetime? (sighs) I don't think he ever had the the recognition that he thought he deserved. And towards the end of his life, of course, he had quite the reverse. To be honest, the habit of power got too great with him. He should have gone and he couldn't. He's been arbiter of architectural taste for 50 years nearly. When George I comes to the throne and a shady crook called William Benson persuades George I to sack Wren, Anne Wren's fallen out with the authorities at St Paul's. He's a grumpy old man. And that's when he says he wishes he hadn't wasted his life in rubbish in building. Because he feels that he's being neglected. He feels he's being rejected. He's being left behind. And of course he is. You know, when the scaffolding came down on St Paul's, Lord Burlington said something about when Solomon saw the temple, he wept. The Palladians are moving in. Wren's the old school. Wren's the old guard. He's an absolutist. His time has passed by the time St Paul's is built. And he was too wedded to power, I think, to realise that. He wouldn't be the only one, would he? It happens. Yes, the challenge of staying nimble and ahead of the game as one ages. It's something we all get to face, I suppose. Lastly, then, I noticed, of course, that this year there was a service of Thanksgiving at St Paul's to mark the 300th anniversary of Wren's death. And I wonder when Wren became a significant figure in Britain's national consciousness. Was this, therefore, something that in his lifetime, or has it been something that has evolved over time? For example, when St Paul's stood valiantly amidst the bombing of the Luftwaffe in the Blitz, for example. Yeah, it's a gradual thing, I think. Wren, like every other Baroque architect, drops massively out of fashion in the 18th century, along with Vanbrugh, along with William Talman, the architect of Chatsworth. They are disregarded. They are yesterday's men. Then in 1823, the centenary of Wren's death, We have a sort of flurry of publications. By 1923, Wren is distinctly fashionable. 
And you're right, it is St Paul's, even before that famous photograph of St Paul standing proud, wreathed in smoke in the middle of the Blitz. In the early 1900s, St Paul's is being called the Parish Church of Empire. It's where Nelson is buried. It rivals Westminster Abbey as the place where our statesmen are memorialised and are buried. By the end of the 19th century, you've got an architectural revival of early Georgian styles, which is called the Renaissance, with a W. And it's basically building mini Hampton Courts. They're beautiful buildings. So Wren is being rehabilitated. 1923, the authorities launch a massive appeal for funds on the back of the bicentenary, which actually moves things along, which moves Wren's opinion. But St Paul's, more than anything else, that's where George VI launches the Festival of Britain from in 1951. That's where Charles and Diana begin their doomed fairy tale wedding. It's a lot more than just London's cathedral. Mm. So St Paul's, ultimately, of all his achievements, is the one that has remained central to the popular imagination. And yet, you've reminded us of some others today that we need to pay attention to. And although, of course, he tweaked it, I'm still conscious of the fact that it wasn't what he wanted. It wasn't what he intended. And that sense of frustration has really come out in our conversation today that this really great man was still, in the end, not satisfied with what he had been able to do. Is any of us ever satisfied? And certainly, is any creative ever satisfied? Does what they make ever fit the vision of what they could make? I don't think Wren is unusual in that. Where he is unusual is in the extent of his creativity, the vast vision. He is, without doubt, Britain's greatest architect. Nobody comes close. And it's interesting, I think, that in a society which we don't value our architects particularly, and there's only a handful that the person in the street can just name, Everybody's heard of Christopher Wren, and that's not a bad epitaph. No, indeed. Thank you so much for talking to me about him. And I'm going to remind people of the name of your book, which is His Invention So Fertile, A Life of Christopher Wren, because there's so much more than we've managed to touch on in our conversation today, and it's a wonderful guide to more about Wren. So do look for that. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. my producer Rob Weinberg and my researcher Esther Arnott and thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit we're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects so drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on twitter at notjusttudors also if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts do sign up to our newsletter Tudor Tuesday details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast and please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built – a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.